Have you uh, been to the movies lately? You know, summer is the time when all the Hollywood studios are hoping that their movie is going to be the blockbuster hit of the season. And so far, the movie to beat is that fourth and final installment of the Marvel Comics superhero series. The movie was called Avengers Endgame. It was released back in April. Worldwide, it broke the record for the highest opening weekend gross receipts ever, over $1.2 billion worldwide. I mean, that's a lot of popcorn, am I right? I mean, people just flock to see this movie, and that tells us something. It tells us that people love heroes. They're attracted to these powerful guardians, champions, defenders, who rescue damsels and dudes in distress, who save the country, save the world, save the universe. Uh, I think we like it when there are clear-cut good guys and bad guys, because in real life, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. We like a good hero. But what's also interesting about the Hollywood heroes is that most of them have some kind of an edge. They have a super ability, something unique about their DNA, some mutation that propels them into hero status. They're not ordinary human beings. They've got super strength, super speed. They can fly, they're invisible, maybe control some aspect of nature like fire or water. Or they've got some super technology that's not available to us ordinary mortals. Whatever it is, they've got an edge. And that's been the trend in modern-day entertainment heroes, whether it's Harry Potter, you know, got his magical abilities from his parents, or Jedi Knights who tap into the mysterious power of the Force. Their hero status is not necessarily the result of their character or of their own personal discipline. They're heroes because something they have something unique that gives them an edge over the rest of us mortal human beings. So these heroes stand in contrast to biblical heroes. In Hebrews 11, we're given a long list of biblical heroes. It's often called Faith's Hall of Fame. And if you read through that list, you'll discover that they're all just ordinary people, but each person is commended for how their faith gets translated into practical action. They're all just ordinary people, but they have the ability to trust God and then put that trust into action. Ordinary people loved by and connected to an extraordinary God. And here's the interesting thing about that long list of the Hall of Fame. There's only one woman mentioned, only one, and it's Rahab the prostitute, one of the shady ladies of the Bible. And Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith the prostitute uh, Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. It's just one quick sort of obscure verse about a woman named Rahab who actually doesn't get much ink in the Old Testament either. But in the New Testament, she's mentioned in three different New Testament books. That's more than any other woman besides Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so besides this Hebrews passage, the second place she's referred to in the New Testament is in James chapter 2, where again, Rahab is held up as a prime example of faith in action. And she's actually put on equal footing with Abraham. Let's hear what James had to say. James chapter 2, uh, starting with verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a person claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? 
You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. I mean, wow, this is really an incredible shout-out to this woman Rahab. In the same way as Abraham, I mean, that's huge, friends. Abraham is the greatest patriarch of the Jewish faith. And the Bible puts Rahab almost on equal footing with him. So is, who is this heroine of the faith? Well, you have to turn back to Joshua chapter 2 to hear her story. Now briefly, after the Jews had come out of Egypt, God commanded them to take the land, first under Moses and then under Joshua. Between them and the promised land was this great ancient city called Jericho, a city of great power and wealth. It was guarded by its famous wall, which they say was at least 10 feet thick. The Canaanites, as a culture, were fairly despicable people. They practiced incest, bestiality, ritual prostitution, and worst of all, human child sacrifice to their fertility god named Baal. And Jericho is their main city. It's the gateway to the promised land. If the Hebrews can take down Jericho, the rest of it's a cakewalk. So at this point, the Israelites, they're a warrior nation. They've had 40 years of wandering in the desert, and that has made them as tough as shoe leather. Now they're ready to go in to the promised land given to them by God. And so Joshua selects two men to go into the city as spies. We're not given their names in the scripture text, but Jewish tradition says that one of those spies was his best friend, Caleb. If you'll remember, 40 years earlier, when they stood in the same spot, it was Moses who sent Caleb and Joshua and a few others to do their first spy mission into Canaan. Caleb and Joshua, they came back with a positive report that said, yes, definitely, we need to go right in. God will give us the land. But they were outvoted by the naysayers and the chicken littles who said, no, no, can't be done. And so that meant 40 more years of eating dust in the desert. And God was so displeased with that decision that only two of the original exiles from Egypt actually made it into the promised land. Guess who? Caleb and Joshua. So Joshua was thinking about, who do I trust to do this spy job? My old buddy, Caleb. Joshua 2.1 says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. That's just the name of the town. I don't make this stuff up. <laughs> two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. One verse, and it's already a complicated story. It's Tom Cruise's next Mission Impossible, you know. God directs them to the house of Rahab. And it seems like Rahab isn't exactly heroin material. She is first introduced to us as a prostitute, not someone you would expect to be praised in Scripture. In fact, throughout the centuries, Jewish and Christian commentators have often tried to explain away Rahab's kind of incongruent lifestyle and polish up her character by referring to her simply as an innkeeper. Well, doubtless Rahab was an innkeeper, but her establishment had more than one purpose. It was an inn and a brothel. But that's a pretty good place for a spy to hang out. As an inn, it would have been a stopping place for travelers from all over the land. And as any good spy movie will tell you, that's a great place to gather information with no questions asked. As a brothel, 
Well, that's sort of a place beholden to secrecy. I mean, men in brothels don't want to advertise who they are. And so everything was set up to be on the down low. And we're told later that Rahab's inn was built right into the exterior wall of the city, which meant it was a great place for quick escape. But there's another reason. God directed the spies to Rahab's house. God knew Rahab's heart, knew that her heart was open to him. Well, as the story goes on, somebody ratted out the spies. And the secret police, they come. Uh, maybe it was their accent or their clothes. Something gave them away. Maybe Caleb didn't have a good cover story. He's kind of old by now. Couldn't say he was just taking a gap year, you know, traveling around the world. Jericho was on high alert. There's a warrior nation camp just beyond their borders. And so the king has got his secret police watching who's coming in and out of the city. And something tips them off about these two spies. So the secret police, they make a raid on Rahab's establishment. But she is one step ahead of them. And that might be Rahab's secret power. She is always one step ahead of the men in the story. Her mind is working. She's able to anticipate what's going to happen in a way that the men do not seem able to do. So she hides the two spies on the roof under bales of flax. And then she lies for them. And she's a good liar. She convinces the police that the strangers have fled. They don't even search the place. Now, do you think it's right that she lies? I mean, she's a prostitute. She's a madam running a brothel. She's a liar. I mean, yes, there's a bigger purpose behind it, but does that really justify the lie? She's betraying her own people. She's betraying her own city. Maybe that's just how she learned to survive in the world. I mean, she's sort of got the triple crown of marginalization going on. First, she's a Canaanite. And that puts her on God's enemy list. Second, she's a woman trying to survive in a male-dominated culture. A single woman, we can surmise, because when she talks about her family later on, she just mentions her parents and her siblings, but no spouse. And she's a prostitute, a fairly successful one, because she's got her own establishment, which also kind of puts her on the outs of, of uh, respectability. So this is a woman who has lived a hard life. And I think generally people like Rahab as a character, but you have to admit she is not a straight-edge person. But friends, this is a transformational story. Rahab's life, her future, it all gets changed, and we'll see she becomes a part of God's plan for the redemption of the whole world. So she hid the spies, just a simple act, but in doing so, Rahab risked everything for these complete strangers. These spies were from a land and a people. She didn't know anything about them. All she heard were the rumors that had been circulating around Jericho, the story of their exodus from Egypt, their battles against other armies. But Rahab, <coughs> excuse me, she didn't see any of that for herself. She had no firsthand experience. She knows nothing about their God. She doesn't know what it means to be forgiven or how that even happens. All she has to go on are rumors of this awesome God, and yet that's enough for her to be willing to put her life on the line. And so she gets the two spies to promise her that they will spare her life and that of her family in exchange for helping them. She strikes a shrewd deal with them, starting in verse 9 of chapter 2 of Joshua. Let me read that. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Shion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, 
and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because of what I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. By hiding and by aiding their escape, Rahab clearly draws a line of loyalty. If any of the people of Jericho found out what she had done, then Rahab would have lost everything. And yet Rahab believed that she needed to be on the side of the Israelites and their God. She raised her hand. She said, I am on Team Joshua. Okay? Her faith, though, very practical. She just wants to come under God's protection so that she and her loved ones could escape the coming destruction. Rahab risked everything about herself because in order to have faith in this new God, she had to lose faith in everything else. Rahab could have turned the spies in, could have benefited by being the one who helped capture them. She could have just discounted the many stories that she'd heard, but God, I think, had planted something in her heart. So Rahab responded to that inner pull. Rahab responded, and she went all in with Team Joshua, believing in this God who keeps his promises. And in so doing, Rahab willingly surrendered everything she had to his mercy. That's why Rahab's faith was so honored much later in the New Testament. Hers is the kind of faith that really moves the heart of God. When a person surrenders everything, places everything they know and love and trust into God's hands, that's the kind of faith that really connects with the heart of God. When you take all that you know of yourself and you give it to all that you know of God, that's faith. Now, she didn't know everything about God. She didn't know much about God. But she acted on the little that she did know. Rahab's faith was translated into practical action. Well, the story goes on. <clears throat> you probably remember the unusual method God uses for toppling the walls of Jericho so that people would know it was God who did it. All the Israelites, all they did was just march around the perimeter of the city, blowing horns and worshiping God for seven days, and then the walls crumbled. You know, skeptics used to really scoff at the idea that, that Jericho with its 10-foot-thick walls could have crumbled like that until archaeologists actually discovered the long-lost city and they found that its walls had actually crumpled exactly in the manner described in the Bible. Now, the city was destroyed around 1400 B.C., which perfectly matches up with the timetable of Joshua and the conquest of Canaan. So the city falls, the spies keep their word, Rahab and her family are spared, and that meant a new beginning for Rahab, a chance to have a different life, to get it right the second time around. Rahab is an example of the grace of God at work. Her salvation, it wasn't based on her character because she didn't have a righteous character. Her actions were a visible sign that something had happened inside. Her actions were the fruit of an internal change. She acted in faith. Rahab found grace through faith and was transformed. And so her whole life was changed. She and her family, they become part of the community of the Israelites. In her new beginning, she was going to have to turn away from her old lifestyle. There were things about her life that were going to be incompatible with this new faith in Yahweh. 
She couldn't continue in the brothel business and be a follower of Yahweh. She had to make real-life choices, things that affected her socially and economically and sexually and relationally, daily choices that affected her in every way. Her faith had to be continually translated into practical action. And God blessed her transformation. She eventually meets a man who loved her for who she was as a woman transformed by God, and in time they marry. In the first chapter of Gospel, this is recorded for us, Matthew records that Rahab married a man named Salmon, which just sounds a little fishy to me, you know. I'm sorry, just, you know. Pastor jokes and dad jokes are often the same thing, you know. God redeemed her, put her into a new, healthy, loving relationship, but she first had to let go of the old. Well, they had a child named Boaz. Boaz married Ruth, and they had a son named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse. Jesse had a son named David. And so Rahab, this foreigner, this former sex worker, this shrewd deal maker, she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. And more than that, the reason Matthew records this is that she's part of the bloodline of Jesus Christ through his mother Mary. This is why Rahab's story is so great. This is God's message to misfits. God, uh, Rahab moved from disgrace to dignity, from a house of shame to God's hall of fame, all because her faith got translated into practical action. You know, James takes us one step further down the faith of path and says faith actually requires action. God simply wants us to be open to his will. He's asking us to let him use us just as he uses Rahab to make ourselves available for his purposes. This is the plot we see repeated over and over again in the Bible. God takes an ordinary person and he uses them in an extraordinary way when they have a simple faith. And some of the things should be visible. James tells us that faith should always move from the internal to the external, from the invisible to the visible. Faith has to be turned into action. For Rahab, part of her action is seen at the very end of her encounter with the spies when they're actually out the window and going down the rope. She's still negotiating with them as they're going out the window. And they say this back to her in verse 17. This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house onto the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our heads if a hand is laid on them. But if you, t if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from this oath you made us swear. Agreed, she said. Let it be as you say. And so she, she sent them away, and when they departed, she tied a scarlet cord in the window. She tied a scarlet cord. You know, friends, we have the benefit of looking backwards on these Old Testament stories through the lens of the New Testament. Marking her house with the scarlet cord, it, it was a mark of protection. It's kind of a hat tip back to the last plague of Egypt when the Israelites had to put the blood of a spotless lamb on their doorposts in order that the angel of death would pass over their homes. Here the scarlet rope protects Rahab's home. And so as with the blood of the Passover lamb, we now recognize the scarlet cord as a prefigurement of the shed blood of Jesus Christ for our salvation. The blood of the lamb, the scarlet cord, the cross and Calvary. The blood-red cord 
comes spilling out of her window. She throws it out. It's her lifeline. You ever seen in a news video some person who's trapped on the roof of a car in the middle of a swollen river, and the first responders come and they throw out the lifeline to him. That's Rahab and her scarlet rope. Desperately, she clutches on to the end of it, a woman who believes in this God of new beginnings. And that's where our story really intersects with hers, because we are sinners, often distracted, often disobedient, often discouraged. We're sinners, and we grab onto the same lifeline, this red rope, because we know it's faith in Christ that will save us. Rahab was a sin-filled woman, a controversial person, cast off, imperfect, immoral, impulsive, and she was handpicked by God to be part of the lineage of Christ. This is one of the things I love about Jesus. He's the God of new beginnings. He's the God who turns things around. He's the God of redemption. He wants people to know they do not have to be defined by their circumstances or their past. He makes all things new. And the Lord didn't just reluctantly let Rahab in. He chose her for her story, just as he chose you for your story. He wanted her just as he wants you. The story of Rahab's new beginning teaches us that God uses ordinary people with simple faith. No matter what kind of past they had or how insignificant they might feel they are, ordinary people who can participate with an extraordinary God. Rahab was redeemed by faith. The faith was proven when she threw that rope out the window. We have the same opportunity, you and I. We are, we are really just the same as Rahab, just ordinary people clinging to that same scarlet rope, the same lifeline of salvation that we have through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for the story of Rahab and that, that it's not just recorded, but it's lauded, that's uplifted for us so that we have to pay attention to this woman who, who was not righteous in any way, but she took the little bit that she knew about you and she acted on it. May we do the same thing, Lord. May we just kind of get rid of this excuse that says, well, I don't know enough. Just, say the, just to live by the little bit that we do know and act according, Lord. There will be opportunities this week for us to put our faith into action. Help us to cling to the red cord of our salvation in you, but also act in a way that will bring you praise and glory and pleasure. We thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.